stay-at-home orders, are they legal? Let's find out. As it shouldn't be mentioned that we're currently living in the midst of perhaps one of the largest problems we'll face in this century, uh, the coronavirus pandemic. As a result of this public health crisis, many governors around this country, the CDC, have urged policies such as social distancing, staying six feet apart from uh, other people, such as wearing compulsory masks and going into stores, closing some non-essential store services, as well as compulsory stay-at-home orders. You should stay at home if you don't need to leave the house. Many non-essential jobs are now non-essential. People do not need to go to work because there is no work for them to do. Some governors in a variety of different states have implemented these rules. And there are many people who claim these to be tyrannical, unconstitutional policies. But I'm here to tell you, well, maybe they're not. Maybe these are fully constitutional. Maybe these policies are in fact legal, constitutional, and while may not be the best sort of policy, certainly help a variety of different people. But in order to first discuss why the policy itself might be constitutional, we need to look at precedent, the history of the United States. And that first dates back to Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln, during the Civil War, used a law passed by Congress to suspend a writ of the Constitution called habeas corpus. Habeas corpus is a policy, it's a legal law, saying that if you are going to be uh, arrested for any crime, your case needs to be heard before a judge. You have the right to hear for a judge to hear your plea. Well, Lincoln suspended that during the Civil War. So uh, he allowed political prisoners, he suspended the rights of the American people, uh, those who might violate habeas, uh, those who might do something adverse to the law, to the laws, allowing them to be arrested without their case being heard. That was during the 1860s, during the American Civil War. You jump forward into 1917, and you meet this man by the last name of Shank. Shank was passing around anti-draft pamphlets, leaflets they called them. And these leaflets were calling for the abolition of the draft. He saw the draft as a violation of the Constitution's uh, 14th Amendment involuntary servitude and the 13th Amendment. Uh, he saw it as unconstitutional. So as a result, he thought that he should pass around these pamphlets explaining to people why the draft was in fact unconstitutional. He was arrested. He was arrested and his conviction was upheld by the Supreme Court. His conviction was, convel uh, his conviction was upheld because they set this precedent called the Clear and Present Danger Doctrine. This doctrine said, well, Shank was presenting a clear and present danger. 
Now, I'm sure that many of you have actually heard this phrase in more layman's terms. The phrase goes as such, you can't yell fire into a crowded theater, because that will cause such a panic, and it's a clear and present danger. Well, that's, that phrase, you can't yell fire into a crowded theater, was actually invented, was actually used, utilized, in the Schenck versus United States Supreme Court case. So, the Supreme Court upheld that Schenck was allowed to have his rights be limited because they were at war, because it was in the favor of the national security, the national longevity, and national stability. But you next look into 1944. In 1944, there was this man, Fred Korematsu, and he now has the case Korematsu versus the United States. And in this case, Fred Korematsu refused to go to one of the internment camps established by Executive Order 9066 under FDR. This man, Fred Korematsu, saw it as racially charged and a violation of various constitutional protections under the Bill of Rights. Regardless, the Supreme Court upheld his conviction of jail time and a fine, and was moved to these internment camps regardless, because they saw that it had a compelling interest. The internment camps served a good goal, the Supreme Court said. It met the least restrictive means, and it was narrowly tailored. In other words, the Supreme Court, for the first time, utilized a policy called judicial scrutiny. Judicial scrutiny is a policy established by the Supreme Court to allow the limitation of rights among American people. So, there are three different types of judicial scrutiny. There's rational basis, intermediate scrutiny, and strict scrutiny. Rational basis is most laws that get applied to rational basis will wind up passing the test and thus will be legal. However, because we're dealing in the case of the lockdown orders of a fundamental right being the First Amendment, we ought to apply strict scrutiny. Strict scrutiny is perhaps the, the hardest judicial standard for the limitation of rights. And by applying strict scrutiny, you have to pass three criteria. It needs to be a compelling interest, it needs to have the least restrictive means, and it needs to be narrowly tailored. Now, I'm going to get into what those mean in just a second. But for a variety of reasons, I do believe that this policy of a national lockdown order would in fact pass the strict scrutiny test. So first, we're going to be looking at a, the compelling interest. But it needs to be a compelling governmental interest, a compelling state interest. And the compelling interest in this particular case is actually two things. The first item is that we are at war. President Trump has declared himself a wartime president, and he can easily do so utilizing 1973's War Powers Act. He can also do so utilizing the Authorization for the Powers on War of 2001-2002. So he's declared himself a wartime president, and he's actually declared the enemy as well. It's the invisible enemy. And if we look back to those past precedents set 
by Korematsu versus the United States. Set by Schenck versus the United States. And set by the restriction of habeas corpus during the Civil War. We will actually see that these policies may in fact be legal because their precedent is backed behind national security, national longevity, and national stability. However, many legal scholars also tend to believe that the, the idea of public safety and public health also would fall under this idea of a compelling interest. The, prote the protection of public health, the protection of public safety, all fall within those categories, uh, many legal scholars would say. So, this is obviously a public health crisis, and because the president has declared that we are at war with the invisible the virus, so we are in fact at war, we have an enemy, and this is a public health crisis, it is undoubtedly going to pass the compelling interest test. That is step one of the strict scrutiny doctrine. Number two, the least restrictive means. The least restrictive means basically says that if we are going to suspend the rights or limit the rights of the American people because of a compelling interest, we ought to make sure that excess rights are not also being limited. So for instance, while yes, the right to assemble might be, might be limited during the lockdown orders, your right to a fair and free trial is not being infringed. Your right to the lack of cruel and unusual punishment is not being infringed. Your right to freedom of speech is not being infringed. Your right to worship is not being infringed. And your right to bear arms is not being infringed. It is only your right to assemble. So that being the singular right would allow it to pass the least restrictive means. However, even that, the right to assemble, it means a variety of things. It typically is paired with the right to petition, something that has been allowed by uh, many governors to occur. If you look at Michigan for the prime example, Governor Whitmer of Michigan allowed the protest, the armed protest of uh, people to go into the legislature. Now, they were wielding AR-15s. Whether or not that upon itself, allowing protesters to wield such um, weaponry, entering a government facility like the legislature is a good idea, that's a whole different argument. But what is not the argument is that they're still being allowed to protest. Our President Donald Trump has tweeted out different protests and supported these different protests. There's protests all around the country to end these quote-unquote tyrannical orders. So, the, these protests are still being allowed to happen. The right to petition is still a right that's being uh, permissible. It's your right to assemble that's not necessarily even being limited, it's being discouraged. You're still allowed to assemble in most cases. You're still allowed to go to the grocery store. You're still allowed to go purchase stuff from Amazon. You're still allowed to go to Target, Walmart, and all your other essential services. It's just that certain services have been deemed non-essential. It's that certain services 
have been deemed essential and for the greater public use, like a Target, like a Walmart, like a pharmacy, like a grocery store. So, for those reasons, I do firmly believe that these lockdown policies do, in fact, uh, are constitutional. They meet the least restrictive means. They are narrowly tailored. And they are, they do serve a compelling interest. But, I haven't yet spoken to the, the notion of a narrowly tailored. Uh, in depth. Uh, narrowly tailored tends to be the same uh, in regard, if you look at precedent, as the least restrictive means. Um, it's, it's pretty much the same thing, uh, depending on which legal scholar you ask. Uh, very rarely is it often discriminated between a least restrictive mean and the narrowly tailored doctrine but often they are grouped as separate things but share the same identity. So as promised, I also want to go ahead and talk about the ramifications of this policy. Have they been a good thing or have they been a, nu a nuisance? And I believe that the policy itself has been mixed. Obviously, there's been economic anxiety that's been induced upon the American people. Many people don't know if they'll keep their jobs. 42% to 40, sorry, 40 to 43% of small businesses that are currently closed will stay closed permanently. So it certainly in, has induced economic angst uh, into the general public of, the, uh, of this country. But what it's also done is it's done something that's not commonly talked about and it's damaged the mental and uh, social emotional fabric of this country. But first, I'm going to talk about why it has been a positive thing. And I'm sure all of you have heard this phrase. It has to do with flattening the curve. The curve has been flattened. It's unquestionable. So, for instance, in New York on April, I have the statistic right, on April uh, 16th, there were 3,215 deaths. On May 18th, which is the day this will be uploaded, 217 estimated deaths. In New Jersey, on April 30th, 457 deaths. Tomorrow, or the day it will be uploaded, 202 estimated deaths. We've seen a stark decline in the amount of deaths per day in every state. We have. Except those who decided to reopen. We've seen a spike of cases, actually. So, for instance, take Georgia. The day after Georgia reopened, they saw an increase in 1,000 cases. Now, many of these cases weren't from the reopening. But there's been a general trend going upward. And it's in fact, Georgia is most likely going to have uh, three peaks. Uh, three waves, rather. Uh, the, one, the, the first wave, which has already occurred. A second summer wave, which will peak probably sometime in July. And then come the seasonal flu and the seasonal cold, winter cold, it'll come around October, November. So reopening does have its repercussions. But the, the flattening the curve argument, well, we've only flattened the curve. We need to destroy and decimate the curve. We need to eliminate the curve entirely. So next, I also want, I want to talk about who flattening the curve protects. 
And there's this common misconception that it only protects uh, older Americans and those with weak immune systems. When in reality, it actually protects more than that. It protects everyone. There's a, there's a fallacy that, that young people are immune to the virus, that kids are immune to the virus, and that if you're a healthy person, you're immune to the virus. Frankly, that's not true. It's not. We're all prone to getting this virus, each and every one of us, those with the strongest immune systems and those that are immunocompromised. So I want to go ahead and start talking about three specific groups. The first group is the 46 million Americans who are aged 65 or older. The ages 65 to 84, those that contract COVID-19, 31 to 59% will be hospitalized. 11 to 31% will be placed into ICU. And 4 to 11% will die. Contrast that with the 85 or older crowd. That's 10 to 27% of American of the 85 or older will die. That's a present that's a pre, uh, uh, that's a preventable death. I understand they're older, but we can stop our fellow Americans, our grandmothers, our grandfathers, our grandparents, our parents from dying when they don't need to. Those are preventable deaths. There were there were precautionary measures that should have been taken, but they weren't. And from here, how do we make sure that no one dies unwarranted? Well, we do that by continuing to lay down our right. We lay down our right to go to the store. We lay down our right to get a tattoo from the tattoo parlor. We lay down our right to get a haircut from the hairdresser. We lay down our right to do luxury, luxurious things that we like to do in America. We lay down our right, in general, to protect our fellow American. There's two common phrases that are associated with uh, American culture. And, you know, it's one of them is based on what our Constitution was built on. It's the premise of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But how can you pursue happiness? How can you pursue life and liberty if you suffer from unhealthy circumstances? And you are and you are sick, and, and certainly if you are dead, you are unable to practice the pursuit of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. But another thing is, and this is a common phrase: "My freedom ends where your nose begins." If I do anything to impede your freedoms, that freedom to pursue happiness, that freedom to pursue liberty in life, my freedom is no longer freedom. It's a danger to you. And that's exactly what this is. The freedom, the ability to go out to stores, to go out to movie theaters and hair salons and tattoo parlors. Yes, it's a freedom. But it's a freedom that infringes the freedom of others. If anything, it is perhaps you being tyrannical, not the government. But as I said, there's also other groups being negatively impacted by this virus, and particularly those that suffer from mental health uh, issues. And we can look at it from those who deal with autism and their inability to wear masks due to sensory deprivation. But you can also look at it from the aspect of certain people are unable to bring their dogs into particular um, 
facilities because it's it's uh, proven that dogs carry the virus. So there are examples of uh, those with mental health illnesses uh, uh, being starkly um, not treated correctly during this virus. I, I understand that the social uh, stay-at-home policies hurt them. The number one reason for suicide in this country, or at least one of the number one reasons, is because of a lack of social connectivity. It's the social isolation element. And that is a po- and that's part of what so, uh, social distancing is. That's what part of what stay-at-home orders are. The lack of social interaction. And so, yes, it's estimated that there will be 75,000 coronavirus suicide-related deaths. I understand that. I understand that there's going to be an uptick in child abuse, an uptick in sexual assault on partners, and an uptick on domestic abuse. I understand that. And I understand that now there is a stigma of leaving your house without a mask. I understand there's a stigma of leaving your house, period, right now. And where that line should be drawn between those that suffer mental health issues and those that suffer physical ailments like being immunocompromised, like having a pre-existing condition, and like being elderly, where that line should be drawn, well, frankly, I don't know. I don't think anyone does. But the best I can say, the the best argument I can provide is if you can stay home, stay home. Lay down your right to help everyone. If you suffer from a mental illness or if you suffer from anything within the private sphere of sexual abuse, domestic abuse, or anything like that, and you just need to get out of the house, get out of the house. Go out of the house, and if you can, wear a mask, wear gloves, but I understand if you can't. Now, for those that are healthy, those that aren't worried about their social, uh, emotional health, the 55% of Americans that said COVID hasn't affected their social emotional health, stay home. Stay home. You're doing everyone a favor, but you're also doing yourself a favor. And remember, your freedom ends where my nose begins. We don't want this. We want to end the spread. We don't want to flatten the curve. We want to end the curve. So I ask, lay down your right. Be well and stay safe.